Today we come to the final portion of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. If you know this section, it's one of the most controversial sections in the Bible. I'm glad it's last. If you study the history of the Greek text, meaning the the text that the New Testament was written in, the Greek text, and how the New Testament came to us, Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, are not in the two um, earliest manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. You don't have to remember that, but when scholars look at this, they say, this is not in the earliest Greek text. The New American Standard Bible and the New International Version um, are based on those earlier texts. So I have a note in my Bible, and if you have your Bible open, you can have a look and see what your Bible says. Right after verse 8, I have a note that says, the earliest manuscripts, meaning the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses, meaning they're ancient documents, but they're not necessarily an entire manuscript of the New Testament, do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. Do you have that note? Some of you do, some of you don't. On the other hand, if you study the history of the Greek text, you will find that the majority of Greek manuscripts do have verses 9 through 20. And it's called, the Greek uh, text behind this is called the majority text. And it is the basis of the King James Version of the Bible. So if you have a King James Version of the Bible... That's the version that has the these and the thous. Sounds a little bit like Shakespeare because it was written in 1611. So this portion is contained uh, in that in the King James Version. Um, today, most conservative scholars believe that verses 9 through 20 were not written by Mark because of content and style. The question then is, if verses 9 through 20 were not written by Mark... Uh, How did they get there? And scholars believe they were added later because we've got them later. So the question is, can they be a part of the inspired New Testament? Should we view this as scripture? Some commentaries on the book of Mark, when you get to, it finishes with verse 8, Mark chapter 16 and verse 8, and the commentaries just stop and they go right to the index. Other commentaries get to, verses 9 through 20, and they explain the problem, and then they explain the text. So you can see uh, this is a controversial uh, issue, and scholars are divided. It is possible, and I would just say consider this, it is possible uh, that a final portion of the book could have been finished by another writer and still be inspired. Case in point, uh, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was written by Moses. Deuteronomy records the death of Moses. Moses did not write about his death. It's probably Joshua. It is quite possible that another portion of Scripture could be inspired and yet not be written by the author. Um, I don't usually spend much time talking about issues like this on Sunday morning. So if you're new here, this is not what I usually talk about. I feel, since it's in your Bible, you deserve an explanation, okay? So that's what I'm trying to do today, is explain what's happening here and, and talk about it from a biblical perspective. So one of the big issues here that's controversial, is this text valid? Okay. Another issue 
uh, is about the content of Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. I want to show you some of the most controversial content in this section, okay? We have a little video clip. I want you to see that, what this raises uh, among some Christians today. Next here tonight, the death of a famous preacher whose faith centered on a passage in the Bible promising protection from snakes. A rattlesnake took his life. And we've been reporting on this church for a long time. So now we're going to show you some images from behind closed doors. Here's ABC's Steve Osansami. Pastor Jamie Coots was always ready to meet Jesus. And the bite that killed him happened at church with his son and family watching. The snake that bit him, we've been carrying it to church now for about four months. He always told me, you get bit, you either die at home or God brings you through. The preacher himself walked us through his world last year, where believers speak in tongues. To many outsiders, it doesn't make sense using poisonous snakes to worship God. That's the singing of a rattlesnake. These Pentecostal families and their hit reality series, Snake Salvation, from National Geographic. There are more than 100 of these small churches across Appalachia, all fighting with state and local authorities. Their pastors arrested for breaking the law, using deadly snakes in worship. The snake is, is nothing more than that to me. It's just a tool that, you know, is used in the Bible. A verse from the book of Mark defines their faith. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. True believers like Coots refuse treatment when the snakes bite. But the pastor, that was at least eight times. We got the call to come back that he had passed away. Doctors say bite victims must always survive when they get medical help immediately. Steve Osinsami, ABC News, Atlanta. And Coots' son will take over the church and will still use snakes. So there you see why some of the content of Mark chapter 16 is controversial. Um, by the way, anybody see any of Snake Salvation on TV? Okay, it was National Geographic show in 2013. Um, snake handling in the church is a fairly modern um, idea, and it has no ancient background, which is really interesting. Um, as far as we can tell, it was introduced in uh, Birchwood, Tennessee in 1910 by George Hensley, who himself died of a rattlesnake bite in 1955. Unofficially, at least 71 people have died in the United States uh, when they were bitten during a worship service. Uh, it has been primarily practiced in the Appalachian Mountain regions in, in the southern United States, Alabama, Georgia, Kentucky, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and West Virginia. It is illegal in all of those states except West Virginia. And then in 2013, National Geographic aired a new series called Snake Salvation feature, featuring Pastor Jamie Coots' church. And so he died on February 15th, 2014, and so they not running the show any longer. Um, so, you know what, I'm glad that I'm not uh, the judge. I'm not responsible to judge people. Those, those people uh, in those churches are probably pretty sincere people, and I would guess that some of them uh, are sincere believers in Jesus, and we might meet them in heaven. The danger is sometimes believers do really silly things, 
they can be deceived. Um, and um, you can see what happens, and I'm going to explain the text in just a little bit. But this is why Mark 16, 9 through 20, is controversial. But I want to talk today about 9 through 20 as part of the text of the New Testament. Uh, and, and one of the reasons is, is nearly all of this text is confirmed by the rest of the New Testament except for one area. One item is not confirmed in the rest of the New Testament. And uh, so let's walk through this and you, you can tell me what you think. First of all, we're going to talk about in chapter 16, verses 9 through 14, if you open your text, uh, we're going to talk about his appearances, the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. So little bring you up to speed a little bit. Last week, Thursday night, Jesus um, was arrested in the garden after he had shared the Passover meal with his disciples. He was arrested on Thursday night, and during that night, uh, he had a religious trial, three three parts, and he had a civil trial, three parts. He was badly beaten with a scourge, among other things. He was crucified on Friday morning around 9 a.m., and he was dead about 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea came forward to retrieve the body. It was really a high-risk operation, and he came with Nicodemus, another religious leader, uh, both of them members of the Sanhedrin, who had become secret disciples. They prepared Jesus' body for burial. On Sunday morning, the women came to the tomb, but the tomb was empty. And an angel said to the women, he is not here, he is risen. And now we come to the appearances, verses 9 through 40. Let me remind you about Mark. We've seen this already. Mark gives short facts. And he doesn't go into great detail. We find the details in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke and also in Matthew. Um, so think about this. Verses 9 through 20 cover 40 days. They cover the time of the resurrection until the, the ascension, 40 days. So Jesus appeared. Uh, we could count through the New Testament about 11 different times. Now, Mark isn't going to record every time, but he, what he does record is chronologically in order. So we come to verse 9. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, Sunday, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom uh, he had driven seven demons. We've heard about Mary Magdalene before. Jesus appeared to a woman first. Do you remember what we said about the ancient uh, times? Women were not viewed as uh, important witnesses. Legally, their, their eyewitness account did, did not count. And yet here it is in Christianity... And it's a woman who was the first eyewitness, and she gets to go tell the story to somebody else, to the important guys like Peter and John. Um, verse 10, she went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. So she goes back uh, from the tomb uh, to the other uh, disciples, and this would include probably the, the 11 that are left, Judas is missing. And uh, probably other believers who are grieving as well, other followers of Christ, so it's larger than probably just the 11. Verse 11, when they heard that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, they did not believe it. Um, so she, she goes back and she says what she's experienced, that she's seen the resurrected Jesus and they're grieving and they choose not to believe it. 
Uh, they were skeptical. They were doubtful. Nothing like this has ever happened before, that somebody's been resurrected from the grave. Now, if you remember also, uh, well, let me just go on. I'll come back to this. Um, so verse, uh, verses 12 and 13, now he appears to two disciples. So uh, Mary Magdalene has delivered the news first. And next, Jesus will appear to two, verse 12. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. And um, Jesus apparently was not easily recognizable in his resurrected form. And um, we don't know exactly why, but he also had the ability to reveal himself and make it clear to those he was with. Um, Mary Magdalene thought he was a gardener at first. Uh, the two the, walking on the road to Emmaus, and that's the two here, the two disciples. They don't know who he is right away, and they talk to him, but yet he later reveals himself. I'm going to go back and read uh, Mark's, or excuse me, Luke's account in Luke 24. And Luke uh, 24, verse 13. Now that same day, which was the first day of the week, Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened as they talked and discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they, but they were kept from recognizing him. So even Luke says, wasn't clear to them who, who he was. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel and what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went through the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels, said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, and Numbers, and all, and all the prophets, he explained to them uh, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And they get it. And uh, one of my points is, Mark just said the simple facts. And the other writers tell us a lot more uh, information about the event. So everything is consistent with the other writers. Verse 13, they returned, that is the two, on the road to Emmaus. They returned to Jerusalem and they reported to the rest, the rest of the disciples, but they did not believe them either. So they're the disciples, the main group, sitting back in Jerusalem, and they're not, they don't believe the women, they don't believe the two from Emmaus. Now verse 14, Jesus appears to the eleven, 
And that's in a technical term for the disciples without Judah. Sometimes they're called the twelve. Sometimes they're called the eleven. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe uh, those who had seen him after he had risen. So both John and Luke record this. Uh, Jesus, remember in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had challenged them about their faith many times. You of little faith. And now one of the most important times after his resurrection, Jesus tests them. Now think about this. The disciples are going to have the job to go into all of the world and to tell people about Jesus and his resurrection. And, and, the, and these disciples are going to expect people to listen to them and believe. But Jesus is sort of testing them here. He has uh, sent someone to them who have seen him first and they haven't seen him yet. Will they believe what they have heard? And Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. Uh, so those are his appearances. Now we go to his commission in verses 15 through 18. The command comes in verse 15. He said to them, Jesus speaks to the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Now it sounds like he's saying this right on the first day of the week. But this is likely many days later in Galilee where he gave the great commission that we have in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And it's not like these are different. It's just like a different way of saying it. Jesus probably gave Matthew 28, 19, and 20 and said a whole lot of things about it while he did, which may well have included Mark 16, 15. But let's look at Matthew 28, 19, and 20 and just be reminded. This is another. Jesus said, go uh, preach the gospel to all of creation, all creatures. He's saying to mankind, to, to go, go, go preach it to humans, is what he was saying. Now, uh, I'm reminded, and we're reminded here, of the Great Commission that we often focus on. Um, so Jesus said this uh, sometime shortly before he ascended into heaven. Uh, he met his disciples in Galilee. He told them to go to Galilee, and he would meet them, and eventually they did. And uh, this is... Um, somewhere in Galilee, and, and Jesus said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So their job was not to hang there in Jerusalem, but was to get out, was to go. And it could be translated, as you go, when you go, since you are going, uh, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to make disciples. What does that mean? Well, it means that you need to share the good news about Jesus. It means that you're going to share that Jesus died for our sins, and he took our place, and we deserve the death, and he paid our penalty, and if we believe in him, he'll give us eternal life and forgive us our sins. That's the message, and when people come to faith, we call that work, by the way, evangelism, and it comes from, the, the root word is evangel, which means what? Good news. And so when sharing this good news, we make disciples. That's a brand new believer, a disciple, uh, someone who has just become a believer, and we're to do that of all nations. We're to, we're to reach out locally in our community, our nation, and we're to reach out globally to our world. That's why we do world missions. 
And a new convert, then, is to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is Christian baptism. It's different than John's baptism or baptisms of the Old Testament. It's Christian baptism. It's to that person who is a new believer in Jesus. And then we are to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And that's an ongoing ministry. And the goal is to teach so that followers of Christ do everything Jesus commanded. It's not partial. It's not pick and choose on what you want to do with your life. It's teach them to obey everything. That's what Jesus wants. We call it lordship when, when we let Jesus be the Lord of our lives and we say he's in charge and I want, to, I want to please him. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And then he has this promise, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And that's an awesome thing. Jesus' promise, as we do this, He's going to be with us every step, every inch, everything we do. However, if you don't engage in this, don't plan on Jesus much. Because this is where the promise is. It's doing his work. It's being obedient. So that's a great commission. And Jesus gives the condition of the great commission of verse 16, the condition of verse 15 about going into the world and preaching the gospel. And he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. That's one of the controversial passages of the gospel of Mark. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Is this another gospel than to believe? At first glance, it appears like it could be. If this was the only verse in the Bible that explained salvation, I probably would want to include it. But look at the other part. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. So he's saying the requirement or the condition of being condemned is not believing. It's, the condition is not being baptized. The condition is not believing. Now, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, I can say, I have believed in Jesus, I have been baptized, and I am saved. That's a true statement. And there's this uh, sort of assumption on the part of all of the New Testament, if we look at the rest of the New Testament, which is really important here, um, to see uh, what, is this, what does the New Testament teach about how to be saved. Um, remember that baptism is a part of the Great Commission. Remember, Jesus said, go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in the New Testament, this concept of being a Christian and not being baptized wasn't even in anybody's radar. If you were a Christian, you got baptized, period. There wasn't such a thing as a Christian who was not baptized. That's a modern problem. So there's this concept that they go together. You believe, you are converted, well, you get baptized because that's what Jesus said. It's like the first step of faith for a brand new follower of Christ. Sometimes they got baptized on the same day. Um, one of the things that you, um, so I would say it's normal for every Christ follower to be baptized in obedience to Christ. Um, Jesus did not say, think about this, Jesus did not say, be baptized and then believe. Did that register? He did not say, baptize somebody first and then later they will believe. No, the order would be, you believe first, you are a disciple, 
then you're baptized. Um, and, there's, and when you think about infant baptism, there's a lot of confusion on this subject. There's no command anywhere in the Bible to be baptized first, and there's no example anywhere in the Bible of anybody being baptized and then uh, be believing later. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say this to remind us, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So salvation, eternal salvation, that's what's referred to here, comes uh, through faith. It's about believing. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Uh, He's done the work. We don't have to do the work. He's done it. Jesus paid the price for sin. It's paid for, and now he offers a gift. And it is not from yourselves. It's not about me. It's not about what I have done or what I will do. It's about what Jesus did for me. Uh, It is a gift of God. And what I needed to do uh, on September 29th, 1974, was receive the gift by faith. And it's not by works so that no one could boast. If it were by works, I'd just tell you how great I am. But it's about Jesus. And we're all the same. We all come to faith the same. None of us deserve it. John 3.18, Jesus said this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus said the way a person gets saved is by believing in God's Son. Whoever does not believe stands condemned until they make that change. John 3.36, Jesus said it another way. He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. It's not about baptism. It's about believing or not believing. That's the issue about whether anyone gets into heaven. We come to another passage in the book of Acts, Acts 2.41, and a little context here. This is uh, after Jesus ascends into heaven, tells disciples to go back to Jerusalem and pray. He said, I will send the Holy Spirit, and that's when Jesus began his church in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter gets up to preach, and 3,000 people respond, and here's what it says. Those who accepted his message were baptized, about 3,000 were added to their number daily. They accepted his message of the gospel that Jesus died on the cross by faith. After they received, embraced that message personally, they got baptized the same day. That's what the New Testament teaches when it comes to this subject. So salvation is by faith. God's requirement is to believe in Jesus. Um, Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, period. Uh, and I, I want to say this, everyone who believes in Jesus should be baptized. So uh, if you've uh, placed your faith in Jesus, you have not yet been baptized as a follower of Christ, you should seriously consider this and find out what the scriptures teach about baptism. Next, we come to the most difficult part of the book, which you've been waiting for, and you've wondered, how do we... Here we go. The signs, verses 17 and 18. Signs are miraculous events with the purpose to authenticate the message and the messenger. Signs are miraculous. They have a purpose to authenticate, to prove uh, that the messenger is from God and that the message should be listened to. 
2 Corinthians 12, 12 says this. The Apostle Paul said, uh, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. And here's what he's saying, marks of a true apostle were. He said, including signs, wonders, and miracles. Miraculous things to authenticate that these were true apostles. So this was like normal for the Apostle Paul and people like the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter. Um, uh, Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4 The writer of Hebrews says, We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, the Ten Commandments and the law of the Old Testament, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation that we have? Next verse. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, like Peter, James, and John, and the disciples. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to the will. So, uh, so signs were like normal in this period of time with the apostles, and, and uh, everywhere they went, these miraculous things happened around them. So now we come to Mark chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. And here's what Jesus said. And these signs will accompany those who believe. So he's saying there are certain miraculous happenings who will accompany those people who evidence faith in Christ. He said, in my name, they will drive out demons. This is nothing new. And um, the disciples did this in Mark chapter 6. They also did it in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 16, and Acts chapter 19, just as an example. Nothing new. That there would be this, it's the power of God. It wasn't being smart people outsmarting demons. It was the power of God. In my name, they will speak in new tongues. This was an unlearned language, but in the scriptures, it's a known language. And uh, we see it in Acts chapter 2, proclaiming the good news. So, for example, in Acts chapter 2, what we have, have on the day of Pentecost is we have thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire who speak all kinds of languages from the Roman Empire. On the day of Pentecost, God enabled the disciples, there were at least 120 present, to speak in languages that they'd never learned, and they got to communicate the gospel and praise God. And that's part of the result of why 3,000 people got saved the very first time Peter preached. So this was not new. And it's mentioned also in Acts 10 and Acts 19 and 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Now here comes the controversial passage in verse 18. And it says, they will pick up snakes with their hands. What we don't see here in the Greek language is this is a conditional statement. It may well be translated, and I think better translated, uh, if they are compelled to pick up snakes, um, it will not hurt them at all. And then the next part is, and if they are compelled to drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. And the idea is, if they were compelled, is the idea of, in, in a case of persecution, if a believer is brought to this, and they were forced to pick up a deadly snake, 
miraculous event could happen that would prove that they are true believers in Jesus. Okay? Um, so, let me, let me jump to Acts 28. Here's an example of somebody handling a snake. It's the only example in the Bible of somebody handling a, a believer handling a snake. Okay? Uh, so, this is the end of the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul has just been shipwrecked on the island of Malta with a group of sailors. He's a prisoner. Once safely on shore, we found, this is Luke writing the book of Acts, once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put, out, put it on the fire, a viper, poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. Next slide. When the islanders saw the snake hang from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. Next slide. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a, he was a god. And so... Uh, here, in this situation, this is the only example in the Bible of anybody handling a poisonous snake as a believer, and um, God preserved his life and showed his power to the people that they got, they got the people's attention, okay? It's the only example in the Bible, and I must say there is no example in the Bible anywhere about uh, anybody drinking poisonous, anything poisonous. And, and living, okay? And let me be clear here. There is no command in the Bible to handle snakes. There is no command in the Bible to handle snakes. There is no, <laughs> there's no command in the Bible to, handle, to drink anything poisonous, okay? So something weird happened in 1910 when somebody thought God told them to handle snakes. They also drink strychnine in their services, and they think it's evangelistic. Um, and then um, there's a last portion. Um, they will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. That's not new. It happened in the Bible. Acts 28, verses 7 and 8. This is the Apostle Paul Again, on the island of Malta, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. The fulfillment of Mark 16. So, um, th that's the controversial sign stuff. Next we see is Ascension, verses 19 uh, through 20. And before we look at 19 and 20, let's go back to Acts 1, 1 through 3. In my former book, this is Luke. Luke says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Next slide. 
He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So 40 days take place between the time of the resurrection and the time of the ascension, which brings us to verse 19, the ascension. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. There's the ascension in a nutshell. Mark states the fact it's done. He was taken up into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. Luke gives more details in um, Acts 1 and Luke uh, 24. Um, And then Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. We're not going to look at Luke 24. I have this on PowerPoint, but we won't look at it, but you can read it. It's um, a lot more detail about what happened on this event when Jesus ascended into heaven. And um, it says he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. This was on the event when he was ascended. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you uh, what my father has promised. And that was the Holy Spirit. So Jesus ascends into heaven. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. Do you get that? This is where Jesus is right this minute. Jesus Christ is alive. He sits at the right hand of God, the most powerful position in in God's kingdom, God's right hand, where all of his strength lies. He's sitting there right now. He is not a dead savior. He is alive. He knows every detail going on in your life. And you can address him 24-7. You can talk to him, and he hears, and he knows, and he understands. And he's given you a ton of promises that he will keep uh, with you. We see the work in verse 20. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs accomplished in it. Disciples went out and preached. It started in Jerusalem. And then persecution came to the city and came to the church, and the church was forced out. That's how God often does it. He brings problems to get the church off its seat to move forward. And the church began to expand, and persecution pushed the gospel further and further away from uh, Jerusalem. And they went forward, and Jesus empowered them to accomplish all that he intended in their lifetime. You know what? That is the story of the book of Acts, and it's summarized in one verse in the Gospel of Mark. And so this had to be written quite a bit after the resurrection, after the the book of Acts. And so uh, I'm reminded that the work continues, and the work continues today, and that's us. We have Matthew 28, 19 and 20. This is our job. This is what the church is about. This is why... We meet on Sunday morning. This is what the future is about. Go and make disciples as you go, as you go out on Monday. So God is going to call some of you to go into another country. But it's as you go, when you go, since you are going, live for Jesus so that you can make disciples. And when somebody becomes a follower, they should be baptized. 
And, and the church's job is to teach, to obey everything. And that's not just the pastor's job. That's everybody's job. It's teaching our kids. It's, it's discipling one another day by day. Friendships. It's in growth groups. It's encouraging and helping and mentoring. One of the ways we say it, we say our mission is to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. That's the Great Commission in a nutshell. Help people connect with God. Spiritually get connected. Uh, they need to hear. They need to believe. And then we want to help them to grow, teach them to obey everything. So what's our takeaway from Mark chapter 16, verses 19 through 20? You've been wondering this since the beginning. What's our takeaway? Number one, don't start a snake-handling ministry. <laughs> I just wondered if you were listening. Number two, don't start a drinking deadly poison ministry. It's not commanded. Number three, we are reminded about the seriousness of unbelief. The disciples were slow about taking Jesus at his word. Are you slow about taking Jesus at his word? Jesus said, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. Is there anything you're holding back in following Jesus? Fourthly, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus... You should seriously consider it. Because if you place your faith in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. You'll be given eternal life. You'll be given a fresh start, a new start. If you do not, the Bible says God, God's wrath remains on you. You just need to understand that. And number five, if you have believed, we have an incredible t- task ahead of us. Jesus is alive, and he wants to empower his church to move forward and to make disciples uh, here, our community, to live out the gospel here, uh, to to live like Jesus. That means serving, and that means caring. And in the midst of all that, he's not going to, you know, sometimes you look at the Christian life, and if I do everything I'm supposed to, I'm going to be totally drained. No, you're not. He assumes that you're going to rest. He assumes that you're going to be in relationships. You're going to encourage one another. You're going to pray for one another. You're going to help one another. You're going to serve one another. And we're going to make it. But not only we're going to make it, we're going to be successful in making disciples if we will follow. Let's stand and pray. Thanks, Father. We just acknowledge that Mark 16 has uh, some difficult passages, and I don't understand everything in Mark 16, 9 through 20. But everything but one thing was confirmed in the rest of the New Testament. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you that we have a purpose. We are called to follow you. Father, unite us together as one as we follow. Jesus commanded us to love one another as he has loved us. And by that, all men will know that we belong to him. Pray that may be true among us for Jesus' sake. Amen.